0: Today on Just World Podcasts, Gulf Arab States Intervening in U.S. Politics. Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the President of Just World Educational. This week's podcast is the 10th in our story Backstory Project, which explores Washington's current policies in the Middle East and the Middle East itself in a broader historical perspective. Most of the weekly podcasts in this series are linked to written opinion columns that get published a couple of days earlier. This week's column ran April 25th on the Mondo Weiss website under the title, The UAE's CD Influence Operations, a footnote in the Mueller report. It jumped off from the portion of Robert Mueller's recently completed report that described how a shady Lebanese-American wheeler dealer called George Nader had been working in the periods before and after Donald Trump's 2016 election to establish a back-channel between the Trump team and one of Vladimir Putin's close associates, and also how, when Nader was doing that, he was doing it largely at the behest of the man he has worked for for several years now, the powerful Crown Prince of the United Arab Emirates, UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, more often called MBZ. I urge you to read the whole of that article, which reveals quite a lot about the role that MBZ has played in Middle Eastern politics over the past dozen years, often in coordination with his better known counterpart in Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS. In the article, I also started to to delve into the way that the United Arab Emirates uses a portion of its massive oil wealth to conduct a range of influence operations here in the United States. When I started doing the online research into the influence operations that the UAE, Saudi Arabia and other super wealthy Gulf Arab states have been conducting here in the United States in recent years, the name of one researcher and writer kept coming up. That is Ben Freeman, who now heads up a project called the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at a small, much-respected research institution here in Washington, D.C., called the Center for International Policy. If you're interested in this topic, I urge you to go visit their website, which is at www.internationalpolicy.org. If you click on the Publications tab there, you can find links to some excellent short reports that Ben has published recently about Saudi Arabia's influence-buying projects here in Washington, including one that spells out the effect that Jamal Khashoggi's killing in Istanbul last October had on those projects. Plus, another compelling recent report by one of his colleagues about the US-UAE alliance and its impact on the war in Yemen. So, who better to be my guest on today's podcast than Ben Freeman himself? We started out our conversation with a quick discussion of the history and role of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, which I had been wrongly pronouncing as FARA all this time. FARA is the key piece of U.S. legislation that regulates exactly what people and companies here in the U.S. who are doing business on behalf of foreign governments or other foreign entities can do in terms of influencing U.S. policy and its making. Then, in our conversation, we quickly surveyed the big four actors from the Middle East in terms of such influence buying, including the roles of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar and Israel. Then, Ben got into the details of exactly how all this influence buying works. He also made the key point that many of the same lobbying and PR firms here in Washington that are working for these big four governments are also working at the same time for the big U.S. arms manufacturing companies. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, we packed a lot of really fascinating information into our 35-minute conversation. I hope you can listen to it all. Just before I head to the interview itself, let me also remind you that you can find a lot of great resources on our website, www.justworldeducational.org. On the homepage there, you'll see a prominent button that will send you to all the content we've now produced in this multi-week story, backstory project. And you'll find a handy tab on the website too that tells you how you can donate to support our work. Please consider doing so. I urge you to explore all the resources that we make available at no cost online through the website and through our lively Just World Ed accounts on Twitter and Facebook. So now my conversation with Ben Freeman. Enjoy. Okay, I'm sitting here with Ben Freeman. Hi, Ben Freeman.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Pretty good. Um, Quite a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C., but lots of nefarious things going on in town, so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So I'm going to dive right in. Um, There's this thing here in um, U.S. Legislation, long-standing thing. You just told me it dates back to 1938, called the Foreign Agents uh, Registration. What's the A stand for? Act. Act, of course. So FARA, F A R A. And could you just briefly? I know we could like have a whole seminar on this. Briefly tell us, what does FARA do and what does it not do to protect the American public and the American discourse from nefarious foreign influence?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. In and in, in, I think it's important when we talk about FARA to remember why it was enacted in the first place. So it's enacted in 1938, uh, literally because of Adolf Hitler. And I know people like to throw around Hitler hyperbolically in today's uh, political discourse. But this is one of the few things that literally is because of Hitler and the Nazi Party, which was spreading propaganda in the US in in the lead up to World War II. And they were trying to uh, create Nazi sympathizers here in the US. Then they were spreading pro-Nazi propaganda here and they were effectively trying to get the U.S. on the Nazi side uh, going into World War II, or at the very least try to keep the U.S. on the sidelines in World War II, try to not uh, uh, um, uh, make an enemy out of us. Uh, Fortunately, um, some folks in in Congress recognized this. They did an investigation of what was going on and and, and they found out that indeed there, there, there was this Nazi propaganda being spread rampantly in the U.S and their solution to that was what is what ultimately became the foreign agents registration act and what that required the the interesting thing about FARA and sort of one of the misnomers about it is that it stifles speech in no way shape or fashion does FARA stifle speech if you are a foreign agent working in the u.s and, and and this was the case for for the nazis and you wanted to say that Adolf Hitler was wonderful. You could say that under Farah. What Farah does require you is if you're gonna say something like that, you at the very least have to tell folks that you are working on behalf of the German government. You are working on behalf of the Nazi party and you have to publicly disclose that to people when you're spreading the propaganda or when you're just you know, out, out on the street corner yelling it. Uh, and, and so in that way, Farah at its core is a transparency statute and, and still to this day we've had some revisions to FARA. Um, FARA does not even to this day it does not stifle any speech and uh, not for any government uh, that's out there right now uh, it still remains by and large a disclosure statute that gives the american public the opportunity to know when foreign governments are trying to influence uh, public opinion to influence U.S. policymakers or to influence policy directly, um, and so from FARA, we're able to get information on who's doing this influence peddling. You know, who are these who are these foreign agents operating in the U.S.? So
0: these would be um, American corporations or individuals who are taking money from foreign governments or foreign government supported entities is that correct
1: Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's exactly right and another key fact about fara is is in, 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 in you mentioned foreign governments the the, the interesting thing about fara is it's not just a, a, about foreign governments and the way the statute is written it's very broad it can it can include foreign governments foreign political parties uh, and those closely connected to them but it can also include just a foreign national in a country. Um, If that person has the explicit intent of hiring somebody here uh, to influence US foreign policy or the policy making process in this country. Uh, And and that's a key fact that I think a lot of folks miss. And I think a lot of folks who are getting in trouble for not registering under FARA miss just because the person that hires you, Um, isn't Vladimir Putin, let's say, Mm -hmm. Um, even if it's just a private Russian citizen, for example, and and they hire you to influence US foreign policy uh, in in favor of Russia, that would still require you to register under FARA.
0: Okay, Um, so we've been looking at some of the Middle East actors, um, foreign entities Mainly governments, but also government supported entities in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, and Qatar, which I think are the four big middle Eastern governments that seek to influence policy in this in this country um, have have I missed any uh,
1: no, I'd say that's fairly accurate I might throw um, I might throw Egypt in there. Um... I might throw turkey in there. Um, but but I definitely think you, 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 you easily have the top four there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the uh, the figures from it's the Center for Responsive Politics that has has that wonderful yeah. new sort of web interface where you can see how much each foreign government and they've only been doing it since 2017, yeah. but it, it's really a, a, a fairly handy online tool for just seeing how much each foreign government has been investing, and um, some of these four bad actors or actors um, actually. All of them probably have direct government money going into, like, um, let's say, uh, lobbying firms, PR firms, um, and think tanks here in, in Washington DC. All of which should be registering under FARA for, for, for those foreign inter, foreign subventions. Some of them also have non-governmental entities. I think there's something called the Emirates Center for Strategic analysis or something like that and and that's the entity that gave 20 million dollars to the middle east institute mm. um not the allegedly not the government of uh, of the emirates and then in the emirates each of the own little emirates has its own government so called so you also have the government of abu dhabi or the government of dubai um so sometimes it gets a little murky but still you can see quite a lot of, of things going on what kind of um, when you look at these figures and these records for these four governments what what leaps out at you what what do you think is the most um, damaging for u s society and u s policy making and how do these four actors act differently from each other? I know there's very oh. broad, very broad questions.
1: Um, No, I think those are great questions. Um, And and, and before I answer, I'll I'll just give a shameless plug to um, uh, folks listening out there to to the Center for Responsive Politics and that wonderful data set that they have. You can find that at OpenSecrets.org. That's OpenSecrets.org, and and it truly is wonderful.
0: I think you should also give a a really good plug to your own recent um, publication, which is called... um, the Saudi lobby in 2018, and that's Ben Freeman from the Center for International Policy. A great new study that has just come out, so that's why I'm really thrilled to be here talking to you. Let's start with the Saudi lobby.
1: Let's do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Let's do. Let's do. Um, the interesting thing uh, to me about the Saudi lobby is that despite so many things that that they have done or our saudi foreign nationals have done on the international stage saudi arabia has consistently been been seen as this this stalwart u.s ally um and it's if you walk around the streets of dc or you you know you, you you go to some of these think tanks you know, it's, it's very much the conventional wisdom that, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, it's one of our greatest allies. But then if you if you take even a casual look at even, even recent U- U.S. history with Saudi Arabia, um, you only have to go as far back as 9-11. And you realize 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. Um, And yet you fast forward to um, to this year in early in 2018, uh, President Trump said uh, U.S.-Saudi relations were better than they had ever been. So how is that possible? The simple explanation for that is money in money in a variety of ways. People look look towards oil and say, you know, we need the oil, so we have to maintain these good relationships, which may be true, uh, but a lot of other countries have oil. Actually,
0: oil is a lot less of a factor right now because of, uh, you know, fracking. (laughs) Fracking,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you you know, if you consider fracking, um, you consider that the U.S. has become a lot less dependent on Middle East oil, so that explanation kind of goes by the wayside, but the one permanent in, in in Saudi influence has been the amount of money they're willing to dedicate to their influence operation in America. And, and that has, in, in my eyes, that has at least three major components to it. That's the significant amount of money that they spend on lobbying and public relations firms um, to do very direct in, in influence, to do image management. Um, for, for example, when Mohammed bin Salman Came on his you know grand tour of the U.S. in early 2018. Uh, you might have seen the 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 candid shots with him and uh, The Rock are with Oprah our are, are, are or or Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, he it, went it, to
0: Silicon Valley and somebody set all that
1: up. Somebody set all that up. And, and and it was a lot. A lot of that was set up by these public relations firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big players for them is a firm called Corvus Communications, which was recently bought out by the MSL Group. Um, In their relationship with with Corvus, it's nothing new. In fact, just two months after 9-11 happened, the Saudis hired Corvus Communications to be their spin masters. Um, And then in the 18 years since... Corvus has done, a, a, a fr- frankly, a spectacular job of taking what is, is in all aspects, an authoritarian regime um, that does a lot of things that are very contrary to U.S. interests. And Corbis has effectively con- helped to convince the U.S. that, Sa- despite all of that, that Saudi Arabia is our, is our best friend in the Middle East. It's extraordinary to me what they have done.
0: Have they also done, like, actual organizing donations to political campaigns, Um, that kind of direct lobbying, um, you know, where you go and meet with somebody and then suddenly a bundle of donations appears?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And and this is where the sort of – our our, our, – our weak system of uh, lobbying oversight meets our weak system of campaign finance oversight. Uh, And and this is exactly that intersection because the way campaign finance law works, uh, the Federal Election Commission has a prohibition on campaign contributions coming from foreign nationals. Um, So you say, okay, no foreign money in elections, right? But now let's talk about all the different ways that foreign money can get into our elections. Um, And through lobbyists, there's a very direct way. While if if I'm the government of Saudi Arabia or I'm the government of UAE, I cannot make a direct campaign contribution. What I can do though, is hire a lobbying or a PR firm uh, to work for me in the US. And then those individual, those US citizens working at those firms, they can make campaign contributions to whomever they choose. Money is speech now, right? So mm-hmm. we can't we can't infringe upon that. Uh, and so, corporations
0: are people. I mean, let's remember it.
1: Corporations are people, exactly. Um, so if I'm Saudi Arabia, um, I, I I I I I hire one of these firms, and you know, I pay them lucratively. The individual lobbyists at those firms, uh, they can make campaign contributions. They can hold fundraisers. They can engage in bundling activity. And what we found, what, what we try to do here at the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative is to connect some of those dots. And we ask very basic questions about, well, we know from the FARA documents who you're contacting on behalf of Saudi Arabia, and we know uh, who you're making campaign contributions to. I wonder if those two things are at all related. Um, And we find a very, very strong correlation between who you uh, speak with on behalf of the Saudis and who you're giving campaign contributions.
0: Just as a sort of footnote, I'm interested in when you say we ask them. Do you actually go to Corvus Communications and ask them? Yes. If if there's a connection? Um, That would be a fascinating conversation.
1: (laughs) What? What typically happens in our reporting process is we one of the things we do when we're looking at a country and um, in, in, we've looked at Saudi Arabia and the UAE, we have uh, country-specific reports coming out now, we, we code every single one of their reported political activities. Uh, for Saudi Arabia in, in the last two years, for example, that's over 4,000 political activities that we've identified in just the last two years um and we also code the campaign contributions and for saudi arabia again for the last two years that's over four million dollars worth of campaign contributions that we're tracking and then we put the pieces together and we see you know what's the overlap here and in more than a dozen cases we found on the exact same day a saudi lobbyist um, met with a member of congress they made a campaign contribution to him on that exact same day Uh, if you stretch it out to a couple days a few dozen more stretch it out to a week and we've got dozens and dozens of these examples. And so what we do, we we identify those, um, and then we do try to get comment from the firms about it. And and, and we say, you know, according to, it, and it's all according to their fair filings. Mm-hmm. This is, it, it's nothing beyond what they they've already publicly reported. Um, and we try to get them to explain, you, mm-hmm. you know, what happened. And we see on this day, um, you said you met with. Uh, um, it was, it was, Senator Einhoff was one of the examples um, in, our, in our in our most recently released report. In um, the McKeon group contacted him, um, uh, I think it was ten days before a key vote on on Yemen, and and they contacted him about U.S. Saudi relations that same day. Uh, they made I believe it was a thousand dollar campaign contribution to him, um, and so we asked these folks, and you know care to explain, Mm -hmm. and they, uh, (laughs) what we've universally found so far, we've been woefully unsuccessful in getting a response, Uh, (laughs) um, and by that I mean literally none of them has responded. In my my previous uh, career, I worked at an organization called the Project on Government Oversight, uh, which is a wonderful organization, worked with whistleblowers, it's pogo.org, and and there we we did a report on Farah. And, and I actually did get one of these. Uh, I, I got a member of Congress on the phone, and I said, "Hey, s- s- sir, you know, thank you for taking the time. Um, I I've identified this. Uh, you, a lobbyist met with you on this day, and you also received a, a campaign contribution on, on that same day uh, from that same lobbyist. Um, can can you recall this?" And he was like, "When? Where?" It's like I don't remember that whatsoever. And then he uh, he so he sort of scolded me, in and, and, and it was telling. But he said do you know how many campaign contributions I get? Do you know how many meetings I take? He's like, I can't possibly be expected to remember one from two or three years ago. He was out of office at this mm-hmm. point. And so he's like, I can't possibly be expected to remember that. So if, if you're asking, did that have any impact on me? The answer is no. And I'd say, I said, you know, we reported on that and I, 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 I think that's that's fair of him to say. But I think on the other hand, if you're a member of Congress and you know that somebody from this lobbying firm has, has just held a fundraiser in your honor, let's say, or some, somebody from this lobbying firm, you know, you know, they regularly contribute, you know, $10,000, dollars $30,000 collectively, you're probably going to be more likely to take that meeting. So at the very least, I think the campaign contributions, they're going to open the doors for, for the members of Congress.
0: So um, rather than go through each of these for actors and how they work. I mean, I would assume in general um, that the Emirates and Qatar do roughly the same. They have scads of money, they hire lobbying firms, they create think tanks, they infiltrate and capture existing think tanks and so on. Um, I think Israel is probably a little different because a lot of their influence comes from actual American citizens who are big donors and big movers and shakers. So what the government of Israel has to do is, in a sense, a lot less than what the government of Saudi Arabia has to do. Is, yeah. is that
1: right Yeah 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 I'd say that's very accurate and in in, in 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 really with Israel when when we're talking about Israel's influence we we're, we're talking about APAC and let's let's be honest um in in, in APAC is very interesting and and, and folks uh, there, there are folks out there who you know call for APAC to to register under Farah. Um, and, and you know folks who bemoan you know APAC's influence, and I'm not going to comment on the, on their influence, but the the simple fact about APAC is that they they, they are not the, the way the law is written right now, they are not required to register under FARA because the, the the money and the 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 control of APAC. Um, is entirely U.S. based. Um, I I know folks who have uh, who've done fundraising work for APAC, and, and it's all here, and and, mm-hmm. and it's raised by you know Israeli Americans, and there, and there's a reason it's called the American Israeli, uh, because these folks are American citizens, and mm-hmm. and, and so the money's coming from here. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, folks can cr- critique the influence of APAC, but the money is here, and so they don't have to register under FARA. The problem that poses um, for uh, uh, a pesky little person like me who wants to, you, you know, uh, talk about uh, uh, the influence is that because they're not registered under FARA, we don't know as much about what they're doing. We don't know who they're meeting with. We, we can't- You re- don't have
0: the transparency that you actually get with FARA.
1: Exactly right. And so for all these other countries, for, um, uh, for Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and, and, and Qatar, um, they don't have those domestic constituencies here. And so whenever they're hiring a lobbying or PR firm, they do have to register under FARA. We get great transparency, and you know we can really follow the money there. Um in a way we just can't with Israel.
0: Having said that though, I was surprised when I went to that um the website. Why do I keep blanking on the name? Anyway, the the government of Israel does do some non trivial funding in addition to what domestically APAC does. And one of the big recipients is some kind of a media company. Mm-hmm. So clearly they are concerned about shaping the discourse and that's coming out of government of Israel funding. So like this is different between Israel and those other three actors. We actually, you know, as U.S. taxpayers, give a huge chunk of money to Israel every year, mm-hmm. and then some of that the government of Israel uses to come back and and I mean, am I wrong there? <laughs>
1: um, I think I, I think technically that money that uh, we we provide Israel every year, yeah, I, it goes, I technically think it can it cannot be used to you know hire lobbying and PR firms. Um, but the question is always to me, whenever, whenever something like that happens, is like, how do we really separate this money? Uh, yeah, money um, is fungible. Money, yeah, yeah Th- I think my, that's the
0: function of money. <laughs> yeah. to, to be fungible.
1: Yeah, I think money is very fungible. Um, and so, you, you know, could that, could that happen? You, you, you know, it, it, it possibly, it certainly could. But there's significant overlap to, I, I, I think, with the other three countries you mentioned, because um, they're all big buyers of U.S. arms. Right. And, and so this is where you get this fascinating alliance of these foreign lobbies, these lobbying and PR firms that are working for these foreign governments.
0: And also working for Raytheon. Exactly right. Got
1: it. Yes. Exactly so right. So
0: it's the military, industrial, foreign policy complex.
1: Exactly, and and, and, and they work together. Um, so. It, it, And and this is not just a conspiracy theory type thing. Um, I I, I can tell you over 10 firms who both work for one of these countries Mm -hmm. and work for at least one of the defense contractors, and and one of my favorite examples, and I I, I keep going back to the McKeon Group, I know, um, but it it checks so many cronyism boxes. Number one, uh, uh, the McKeon Group works for the government of Saudi Arabia. Um, But they also work for a handful of big defense contractors who sell arms and weapons and training in some cases to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And so when, and and also the McKeon Group is, it was founded by the former chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Buck McKeon. That's the firm's namesake. And so when when Buck McKeon, our lobbyist working for him, goes into an office and, and they say, don't worry about uh, the Yemen war, uh, and, but do let Saudi Arabia uh, um, have this arms sale. They're they're checking the box for so many clients for, for the government of Saudi Arabia and every single one of those. And they Ben's probably contract. double bill all of them. And they probably double bill <laughs> all of them.
0: And plus, somebody who's in the house, you know, who was maybe a, a junior member of the house when Buck McKeon was, you know, a powerful committee chair, mm. is going to take that call. Is going to take that meeting.
1: Yeah, because he's he's your former boss, and this is a guy who probably you know when he was chairman, you know maybe he, uh, uh, you know he doled out some favors, and so you know he leaves office, and you know maybe his uh those junior members or even it's not just even members uh. You know it's the staffers, the staffers on, on remember their his
0: aura yeah,
1: we, yeah remember you know this is the chairman this is the guy and so i think they're going to be much more likely to take a meeting from somebody like that
0: too. no question about it really okay i want to come on to three instances where things may be getting a little bit better um or or you know the old mold getting broken let's first of all talk about yemen because that's very current. And um, we did get the Senate supporting the act that would um, rein in or end US military support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. And then last week, um, President Trump decided to, to veto that. And now there's a question of of, can you get a, a an override for the veto. That is, you need to get more votes in the Senate in order to override the veto. But the fact that um, the Yemen issue came up at all was in a sense a a, um, setback for the Saudi lobbying industry just as back in 2016, the JASTA Act was. That was the act that enables US citizens to um, actually sued the government of Saudi Arabia in relation to 9-11. And, I mean, that was a massive setback, the JASTA Act, and so presumably has been the uh, the Yemen Act. So things are, are maybe getting a little bit better in terms of Saudi Arabia's influence um, waning? Uh,
1: <laughs> the... <laughs> The, the 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 optimist in me w- w- would love to agree with that um but i think in this case instead of you, you know the, you know the glass being half full or, or the glass being half empty um there the, there's just there's just half right now <laughs> um and i don't know if it's half full or if it's half empty um and, and, and the reason i say that is um so uh, after with jasta of course you you have this this overwhelmingly popular bill you know 9 11 victims families um you you know it's gonna allow them to to seek financial redress for what you know a crime we know was committed um, by these Saudi nationals, um, so that that should have been a no-brainer, and it was for Congress. Was the interesting thing about it it, it went through Congress almost unanimously, um, and yet what, what what people often forget about that um, is that Obama issued one of his few few vetoes to override Congress on Jasta, and and we can talk about the politics of mm-hmm. that. You know, some folks said he was doing it as to sort of compensate them for for passing the Iran deal, d- despite Saudi objections too, mm-hmm. um, but eventually you know Congress overrides the veto. Um, but I think the prop the process for why that took so long is still a testament to the power of the Saudi lobby. This should have been a no-brainer. And, assumed... and in
0: fact the US military should never have been supporting the US uh, the, the the Saudi war in Yemen at all i mean that's right. kind of what i was saying in in my article like it took yeah. 4 years to get to where we are on Yemen and it was obama who actually signed off on mm-hmm. supporting mbs's military adventure in Yemen in march 2015 that MBS and everybody else assumed would be, you know, one of those classic cakewalks. Like, right. you know, we, we, we're going to go and it'll be done in three weeks. Right. And here we are four years later, 70,000 Yemeni civilians having been killed, cholera, mass starvation in the country, you know, vast areas of it devastated. And the Saudis and the UAE very active in all of these atrocities, including the UAE doing just Horrendous tortures in the south of, of Yemen. Yeah, that
1: we on maybe, the ground. Yeah, yeah. In in in. in I, I completely agree with that. In I, I would only add that we also know about. U.S. complicity in in all of this. Mm-hmm. We know there there have been enough reports coming out um, uh, uh, from CNN, for example. You, you know had a great expose series um, uh, at, uh, towards the end of last year called "Made in America," uh, where it talks about all these different um, uh, Saudi and UAE airstrikes that killed civilians, where the remnants of U.S. bombs were found. Right, and so we know for a fact that some of the weapons that we are selling them are being used to perpetuate the atrocities in this war.
0: And U.S. naval support in, in, in the blockade of, of Yemeni ports which is a cause of a lot of the humanitarian disaster. So. Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. and Another thing we know too is that some of the weapons that we've provided um, to the Saudis and the Emiratis have made their hands into al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Al-Qaeda in Yemen now is is getting their hands on some of these U.S. weapons. And now let's be honest, from from the U.S. point of uh, view about the Yemen war, the Yemen war is not a direct threat to America. The, the the Yemen war, there's no there's no sort of base of operations for a group that you know could attack the U.S. from Yemen. But who can attack the U.S.? Who's proven they can do it? Al Qaeda. And so our involvement in this, it's. It, it, it uh, at the very least this conflict has helped to fuel al-qaeda's resurgence in yemen so i think based on that metric alone even if you're even even if you're a hawk even if you're you know you're not somebody you're not somebody like us who really cares about these human rights issues even if you're just looking at this from purely you know a realist per you know hawk Mm. perspective or
0: i'm a director of raytheon or, or you know one of the big right um arms corporations i mean I don't know I, I suppose they care because they want to make profits.
1: <laughs> yeah I, I I think it's a good question to to ask them you know you know how uh, how do you feel that a weapon you made is now in the hands of the terrorist organization mm-hmm. that was responsible for 9-11. Um, that for me would you know would keep me up at night um, but I guess that's why I'm not the president of Raytheon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let, let's let move um, to the Fashoggi killing which um, obviously was very shocking for deep sections of the US political elite here in Washington DC um, you know it, it goes beyond your kind of rank-and-file some foreigner somewhere commits a human rights abuse but here was a guy who was a columnist for the Washington Post who was almost certainly killed in a most gruesome way um, dismembered uh, by officials of the saudi government is that a fair characterization i think it is yes. i think it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Very fair. And... according to our intelligence authorities <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so that did cause a setback to saudi arabia's influence operation i haven't had the chance yet to read your report on on the effects but can you summarize um what yeah. happened
1: yeah yeah absolutely um after uh, after the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, that again, according to our intelligence authorities, w- was authorized by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, so that the very highest levels of the Saudi government, um, their their influence operation in America unquestionably um, w- was weakened and unquestionably took a hit. Um, it became. so... Something of a toxic uh, label if you were working with the Saudis, and so we saw this sort of trickle effect uh, work through their influence operation. You had sort of sort of the most obvious, where um, the the lobbying and, and PR shops, their fair registrants that had been working with the Saudis, several of them uh, uh, dropped the Saudis as a client, you know, immediate in the immediate aftermath. Can um, you do
0: that under the terms of a contract, like? instant termination or you have to carry on like Mm
1: Um, most of the uh, m- most FARA contracts have provisions in them to do exactly mm-hmm. that to leave um, for, for cause. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I think you, you know, a lot of these big firms who work for clients like this, they sort of know on one level who they're getting into bed with here. Mm-hmm. And so they know that you know these regimes might be capable of something like this. And so you build in the clause, you that put says, the
0: clause in the contract.
1: Yeah, it says you can get the heck out of there um, for, for a lot of these, not all, but, but a lot of them that I've seen have that clause. Um, And and so you see um, some of their biggest firms, uh, the the Harbor Group um, and BGR, then they they leave them very quickly. And so, you know, right there, you know, you take some of your biggest uh, uh, lobbying firms off the table. Uh, then at think tanks, uh, you you see a similar effect there. Um, the Brookings Institution, what was the first think tank to come out and say we're not going to take it in any Saudi money anymore? You know, it's it's very heinous what happened.
0: Did they say we're going to give back the Saudi money we took over the last three years?
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, no, um, because they had they had basically already used up the money. Um, and 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 that's a whole other issue. But at, at least they, they 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 were the first to come out and say, you know, we're going to do the right thing. We're we're mm-hmm. not going to take any Saudi money going forward. Uh, other think tanks who we know take a lot of Saudi money were. Uh, were a little more nuanced in their response. Like the Middle East Institute, for example, said, um, you know, we're carefully reviewing this. Uh, in the interim, we are not going to take any more money from the government of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they didn't put, you, you know, a sort of, you know, blanket statement mm-hmm. that we're not going to take Saudi money. And but...
0: then they h- held a uh, a little panel discussion, a seminar, on the role of uh, foreign governments and think tanks or something. <laughs> yes, <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. That was... <laughs> Very very bold of them to do that.
1: It was, and, and, and it was amazing to me when they held that event. The role of, and, and it was very much they were advocating for the role of think tanks in, mm-hmm. in, in helping to uh, guide U.S. foreign policy. And what really struck me about that event was they completely left out how the funding of th- those think mm-hmm. tanks can affect the work those think tanks mm-hmm. do regarding U.S. foreign policy. Um, and then when somebody in the Q and A, it wasn't me for the record, (laughs) somebody in the Q and A asked them about that. They, uh, they of course gave the, uh, completely uh, a, a naive explanation that no no no, our funding does not at all affect our research uh, independence is critical um which for anybody I, I i've worked at think tanks before um and I, I have many many friends who do um and i think anybody you who's really honest with you about uh, about that will tell you that the, the funding of the think tank it absolutely matters um, and if it didn't your funders would be crazy <laughs>
0: I mean, I've certainly experienced that with the Middle East Institute, um, with their work on Syria, and definitely skewing the whole conversation on Syria, very, very intentionally directing it toward only supporting regime change, only supporting the overthrow of the government. So. Yeah. Um, and I also looked to see what kind of programs they'd had recently on Yemen, and very, very few.
1: Very, very few. Like, yeah. why? <laughs> you
0: know, Yemen is a big thing. Anyway, um, there's a lot more we could talk about, and maybe we'll come back and talk about it later. But thank you so much for um, giving the listeners this really informed view into how this all this influence peddling works here in Washington, D.C.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Bye bye then. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>